Hi, I'm Moshe Zeldman. Welcome to Schmoozen. We live in times of unprecedented change and confusion. The rise of cancel culture, the promises and the threats of artificial intelligence, identity politics, a society where more people are more digitally connected but are feeling lonelier than ever, and a world that seems to be edging towards World War III. I believe that Judaism can shed light on all of these issues. Schmoozing is more than a podcast. It's a platform for a community of thoughtful voices on these important topics. Let's explore together how Judaism can provoke us to deepen our understanding of the times we live in, confront the challenges we face, and bring some light into this world. Welcome to our continuing series called How to Think About Stuff. We want to explore all kinds of issues going on in the world around us. There are social issues, there are political issues, religious issues, divisive issues, psychological issues that we face all the time. And we're bombarded with so much information from media, from our family, from our friends. There are so many people with so many opinions. There are so many videos. There are so many memes. We're bombarded all the time. And we make decisions based on the input of all the information that we have. So in our previous episode, we talked about the idea of social conditioning, the idea that we all live with values that we believe to be true. And when we examine those values, we realize that more often than not, those are values we were raised with. Those are values we got from our parents, our friends, our teachers at a very young age before we could think critically about them. And we just accepted them to be true. If I grew up in Iran, I'm a lot more likely to be a fan of the Ayatollah than if I grew up in Idaho. That's true about everything that we believe. We talked last week about the idea that Abraham, the founder of Judaism, taught us this idea of disconnecting from society. Abraham grew up in a world of idol worship. His father, his society believed in polytheism. Abraham challenged it, questioned it, realized it wasn't true, and was able to totally step outside of it and develop monotheism. It wasn't because he was brilliant. We don't know that he was especially brilliant. It's because he was willing to not assume that what he was raised with is true. That's why the Torah calls him Avraham Ha'ivri, Abraham the Hebrew. The word Ivri, Hebrew, means to be on the other side. Abraham reached a point in his life where he was able to look at the entire world around him and say, you're all wrong. Because I've thought about it. I'm not brainwashed by the world around me. I've come to reasonable conclusions. Let's sit down and talk about it. So that's all a question of external influences. This episode, we want to talk about internal influences, cognitive biases. The fact is, our emotions always play a role in the decisions that we make. And that's what we're going to examine today. If you look at any time in your life where you've made a mistake, you look back at a bad decision you made, if you really go back and put yourself back in those shoes, you'll probably realize that at the time you made the decision, you knew that what you were doing is wrong. You knew that you would regret it, but somehow you let yourself get away with it anyway. How? Because you rationalized it. As a close friend of mine says, what does rationalize mean? Rationalize is rational lies. We want to do something, and regardless of whether it's good or bad or true or false, we find a way of rationalizing and justifying that somehow it's okay, even though deep down we know 
that it's not. And it's only in hindsight, when we look back and we're not emotionally involved, we look at those decisions that we made and we say to ourselves, what was I thinking? How did I let myself get away with that? It's so obvious to me now that I regret it and I shouldn't have done it. And those are the mistakes that truly hurt. Because if I look back at a mistake that's innocent and I really didn't know any better and I couldn't have known any better, okay, I'm a human being. I have limited information. I did the best I could. But if I could have known better, if I did know better, all I was doing was convincing myself of something that I knew was false. That's a painful realization. And we all go through that. So let's examine this thing called cognitive bias. The description of cognitive bias is when we hear facts that jive with our worldview, we naturally like them and accept them uncritically as true. When we hear facts that don't jive with our worldview, we are much more inclined to find ways to question them or dismiss them. Just as an interesting experiment right now, I'm going to make two statements. Listen carefully and tell me what you monitor. Tell me how you feel emotionally at each of these two statements. What voice do you hear coming up at these two statements? Number one, President Joe Biden created, <laughs> even just saying Joe Biden probably called the reaction, but okay. President Joe Biden created a law that provides roughly $10 billion in funding for mental health care, the largest ever investment in America's mental health care system, and a critical one at a time when rates of anxiety and depression are on the rise, especially among young Americans. It's a landmark breakthrough. Statement number two, former President Donald Trump created the Abraham Accords, a treaty of full normalization between Israel and its former enemies, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, hailed as the greatest move toward Middle East peace in decades. So if you can be sensitive to monitoring your emotions as you're hearing those two sentences, you probably noticed that at one of them, somewhere in the process of praising this person, there's that voice in you that said, yeah, but, yeah, but what about illegal immigration? Yeah, but what about the economy? Yeah, but what about January 6th? Of course, presidents do good things and presidents do bad things because presidents are human beings. We all do good things and bad things. But why do we choose to look at the good of one and try to dismiss the good of the other? Because hearing the good of one makes us comfortable. It resonates with what we believe. We think President X is great. So I love to hear things that validate that theory. And I don't like to hear things that go against that theory. I don't like the other guy being praised because I've made up my mind he's bad. And somehow if he's bad, it's hard for me to consider anything that he does as good. It's impossible to be objective. <laughs> so as much as this is true about politics, true about love, it's true about how we raise our kids, it's true about what we read in the media, it's true about the emails we get, it's true about conversations that happen at parties, it's true about anything that's presented to us in life that has any kind of emotional bearing. It could be Russia and the Ukraine. It could be Hamas and Israel. It could be how we feel about abortion. It could be how we feel about our kids or our spouses or our partners or our friends. So I'd like to share a few telling examples of this just to drive the point home. I once had many years ago a boss who asked me to give him a proposal for a project. I spent hours on it. I did research. I thought about what he would like to hear. I thought about how to best present it. I thought about how to make it very clear and presentable. I composed it. I showed it to a couple of friends. 
I presented it to the boss. Spent five minutes quietly looking through it, read it very carefully. And he said, Moshe, it doesn't really work for me. I don't think it's a good plan. I don't think it's feasible. I don't think it's been thought out enough. I think there's a lot of assumptions you're making here. I think there's a lot of loose ends that you haven't taken into consideration. I think you need to do more work on it. I'm not very persuaded. So I walked out and I was kind of confused because I really did feel I did a good job. And I showed it to a couple of friends. They also felt so. So I went to one particular friend and I told him what happened. And he said, oh, did you show it to so-and-so? I said, yeah. So he smirked and he said, I've been dealing with this guy for years. And you know what I've discovered? It's all about the font. I said, what? It's all about the font? So he said, yeah, he doesn't relate well to proposals that are written in Helvetica. All you have to do is do it in Times New Roman, give it back to him and see what he says. So this was an interesting experiment. I literally spent 10 seconds on the computer, opened the document, selected it, changed the font, printed it out, went back to him with not one change to the text or the budget. I showed it to him. He said, ah, this is much better. This makes much more sense. This is much more reasonable. I see you've given it some more thought. <laughs> I didn't say anything to him because I don't think he even knows that. If he really felt it was about the font, he would have just said it's about the font. We know that fonts affect us. Marketing companies spend millions of dollars into the research of what font, what graphic, what color, what background music, what style is most going to affect us. When I was an undergrad student in Toronto, I once saw a sign on the billboard that said they're looking for students to take part in focus groups in tasting beer for $20. I said, okay, I get to drink beer and get paid for it. Where do I sign up? So I went to this focus group. There was a group of about six or seven of us sitting around a big table. <clears throat> a woman comes out wearing a lab coat with a clipboard, starts asking us all kinds of information. Our name, our age, what we're majoring in, what our parents do for a living, what we do as hobbies, the average uh, income of our parents' homes, brothers, sisters, basic data. And then... She brings out a small TV, puts it on the table, and shows us a commercial for beer, a certain beer company. So it was a commercial of some people on the beach playing volleyball, and there's a barbecue going on, a water skiing, and there's music, and they're drinking beer. So we watch the commercial, 30-second commercial, and then she asks each one of us some very pointed questions about what we just saw. So she would ask, for example, did you notice in the volleyball game how many guys and how many girls were playing? Did you notice in the barbecue scene, how many hamburgers and how many hot dogs were on the grill? The water skiing scene. Did you notice what music was playing in the background? Was it jazz? Was it rock? And the questions went on and on and on. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a 30 second commercial. I don't remember. All I remember is a guy drinking beer. I didn't pay that much attention, but, but yeah, I, I think it was three girls and four guys. And I, there were three or four hot dogs and you begin to notice that you did pick up details that you weren't aware of. Okay. Interesting. So stage two, she takes out a bottle of beer, puts it on the table and says, what do you think of the bottle? What do you think about the writing? Is this the kind of beer you would order in a bar? Would you order a beer like this if you were picking up a girl? Would you order a beer like this at a frat party? Would you drink beer like this around your parents? And they were really weird questions. And then stage three, which is what I was finally waiting for, was they got to drink the beer. So we're drinking this beer. And she starts asking us more questions. Is it a youthful beer or is it a mature beer? Is it a beer that settles you or is it a beer that inspires you? And I'm thinking it's 
beer. Sure. It's not youthful. It's not inspiring. It's not mature. It's just beer. But the reality is, it's not just beer. The reason she's asking all these questions is because millions of dollars of research go into exactly this. Because when they collect enough data from enough students of what they notice and what moves them and how they describe the beer and the bottle and the commercial, all of that goes into scripting a market campaign. Because they know when you interview X number of students that playing that kind of music in the background, beer sales go up. Playing that kind of music in the background, beer sales go down. Even though nobody would ever watch a beer commercial and say, oh, I like the music, so I'm buying the beer. It is completely subconscious. And now I'll give you another example that's actually been studied experimentally. We've all heard the phrase before, don't shop when you're hungry. So studies have been done observing thousands of shoppers going grocery shopping. And across the board, the findings showed that people that shop between 1 and 4 p.m. buy healthier food than those that shop from 4 to 7 p.m. And why is that? Because when you're hungry, you're more likely to buy food that's high calorie, that's junky, that's instant gratification, because that's what your body is telling you you want right now. If you're interested in the study, I'll leave a link at the bottom of the episode. Another example, something called the IKEA effect. The IKEA effect is a cognitive bias in which consumers place a disproportionately high value on products that they partially created, right? We all know IKEA furniture. Some of us have probably made it. And it's a bit of a schlep. If you think about it, you have to go to the store, find the thing you like, get it home in a box, take out that little Allen key, open up the instructions and try and build the whole thing yourself. A 2011 study showed that subjects were willing to pay 63% more for furniture they had assembled themselves than for the equivalent pre-assembled items. We like feeling connected to our furniture. There's a deeper feeling of connection to a chair that I built than a chair that I just bought. So I'd be willing to pay 63% more money to do more work for that chair. Probably none of us go to Ikea having that in mind. We wonder what makes Ikea so successful. So you might think that when you go to Ikea and you see something at a good price, you say to yourself, ah, that's a beautiful looking table. It's a good price. I'll buy it. When the reality is it's not a great price, you could probably buy the same thing and do no work by buying it at another store. So the reason you're buying it is not the price and it's not the look. The reason you're buying it is because you like the feeling of being involved in creating your own furniture. And we're not even aware that that's why we're making the decision. I'll give you one last example that was shocking to me. <clears throat> Again, I will provide a link. There's an effect of cognitive bias that's called the hungry judge effect. Lawyers will often say that justice is what the judge ate for breakfast. What does it mean? It, it means that when a judge is in a good mood, they are more likely to put more energy into the case to think about what's the fairest outcome for the defendant. Researchers at Columbia University examined more than a thousand decisions by eight judges who were ruling on parole requests from convicts. The study found that judges granted 65% of requests they heard at the beginning of each day's session and almost none at the end. After the lunch break, approvals jumped back to 65% again. So the paper suggested that mental depletion as a result of fatigue caused decisions to increasingly favor the status quo, whereas rest and replenishment restored a willingness to make bold decisions. 
That's incredible. Again, this has been studied and documented. This isn't just a theory. It means if I'm a convict appearing in front of a judge asking for parole, it's not a question of the merit of the case as much as it's a question of how long it's been since the judge last ate and how irritated he therefore is. That is shocking and it's sad. We've all been in situations where we argue with somebody and we're convinced that we're right. We're so sure that we're right and that they're the fool who just doesn't get it. And we go back and forth and back and forth. And then all of a sudden they say something and we have this realization of, oh my gosh, I blew it. They're right. But it's so hard on our egos to realize we've been wasting their time for all these minutes and that we were wrong. So that often what we'll say is not, you're right. We'll say, okay, so I guess there's two sides to the story. Or we'll say it's all semantic. We were kind of saying the same thing anyway. We have a very difficult time admitting our mistakes because it means that we were wrong and nobody liked the feeling of being wrong. As somebody once said, the only thing harder than changing somebody else's opinion is changing your own. So the more we think about this, the more we realize it is replete. It goes into everything. We're hearing news about politics. We're hearing news about something going on in the White House. We've already made up our minds if we love Biden or hate Biden. We're hearing about Russia and the Ukraine or about illegal immigration or about abortion or about gun control or whatever the issue is. We already have our feelings and they may be very strong feelings, even if they're not strong. The fact that we already have an inclination in one way means when we hear information that goes against it, we're not going to treat it with the same objectivity as information that already agrees with what we like to be true. This is known as confirmation bias. It's defined as the tendency to search for, interpret, focus on, and remember information in a way that confirms one's preconceptions. We don't like to be wrong, and it plays into all of our interactions and all of our decisions. So what does Torah have to say about this? Where will Torah give us some guidance on this idea of becoming objective? Since we're talking about decision-making, the place where you find it is where the Torah talks about judges. The job of a judge is to make fair decisions. And the Torah has a whole set of laws around how to judge properly. So, for example, the text of the Torah states, a judge is not allowed to accept a bribe because bribery blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Now, obviously, Judges shouldn't accept bribes. What does it really mean? The Hebrew word for bribe is shochad. Shochad. And the Talmud points out that the word shochad is really a combination of two words. Shehu chad. He is at one. When you're a judge and a litigant comes and gives you money or a gift or maybe even just a compliment, you now have connection to them. You now feel favorable towards them. From the moment that happens, you are disqualified from ruling on that case because you are no longer impartial. This is also called negias. Negia means to touch, to be connected. When somebody gives you a bribe, a gift of some sort, you just can't see them the same way with the same objectivity you saw them before the gift took place, before the bribe took place. Another one of the more subtle laws about judges is that a judge is only allowed to hear a case when both litigants are present. If you're hearing one litigant and the other one isn't there, whatever that litigant says already begins to make sense to you. And you've already on some level accepted it as a reasonable claim. 
When litigant number two walks in, he's already behind. He already has a handicap. He now has to prove somehow that litigant number one doesn't have a claim. So imagine you're the judge. You're going shopping in the morning, you're at the mall, and you happen to run into one of the litigants. And he says to you, I know the case is later today, but I just have to tell you one thing. There is no way I still owe John that money. I paid him back. His wife was there. His best friend was there. They even admit that they saw me give him the money. So there's just no way I owe him. Now, you know, you're hearing one side of the story. You know that obviously John has some counterpoint to make. But the fact is, the damage has been done. You already have a positive impression. You already have a reason to lean in the direction of litigant number one. And now litigant number two is going to have to undo the damage and undo the impression that was already made in your mind. That alone is enough to disqualify you as a judge. Because when two litigants are in the court at the same time and litigant number one is praising himself or exonerating himself or absolving himself, it's easier for you to hear it because litigant number two is right there, probably rolling his eyes or about to make a statement. But at least in your mind, you know you're hearing one side of the story. Another fascinating law is that if two litigants show up to a court case, one happens to be wealthy. So she's dressed very well and very put together. Second one doesn't have the same kind of money, so they're not quite as put together. The law in Torah is that the judge cannot hear the case until they're both dressed the same. Because being a put together person automatically puts a more positive impression on you. Being dressed nicely doesn't make you less guilty. Wealthy people can steal or rob or lie as much as poor people can. But the fact is, we have emotional biases. We look at people a certain way. There's a section of the Talmud called Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. And in that section, the rabbis teach us, be a judge, not a lawyer. Your job, every one of us has the job of being a judge because we make decisions all the time. People come to us with information. The media wants to sell you some sort of a story. A friend of yours makes a comment. You have to decide to believe it, accept it, or not. We are being asked to be judges in every aspect of life all the time. When the rabbis in the Talmud say, be a judge, not a lawyer, what it means is your job is to be objective and evaluate truth. That's a judge's job, not a lawyer's job. What's a lawyer's job? A lawyer's agenda is to fight for one side. The lawyer's not interested in truth. The lawyer's interested in getting his client a winning case. So when you're on a diet and you walk by the bakery and you see those cupcakes and they look delicious, you're making a decision. The part of you that says it's only one cupcake, it's not going to affect me so much. I'll do a little extra weights today. I'll do a little extra walk around the block today. You have to make a decision, but it's impossible to make an objective decision because you want that cupcake. It looks delicious. You're hungry. You can give yourself a million reasons of why it's okay, even if it's not. So just like a judge in court is called upon to look at two litigants and treat them equally and even dress them equally, in our own mind, we have to do the same thing. Some new person walks into your office, a potential client or a customer, or somebody comes to your house or somebody comes to the club. We make an immediate judgment of them, every one of us, based on what we see. Their clothing, their skin color, their background, how they talk, the jewelry they're wearing how put together they look, and all of it might be not at all representative 
of who this person actually is. So when the rabbis say be a judge, it means don't judge people based on first appearances. We do. We will all the time. But we have to try and realize that that's a tremendous handicap. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to make false decisions. We're going to make false judgments. We're going to end up reaching false conclusions. So let's get practical. If the reality is that these things affect us because our emotions are always going to be entangled in any indecision that affects us in some personal way, our comfort level, our preconceived notions, our ego, we don't like being wrong. So how do we overcome it? Given that these biases get in the way, how do we overcome them? So the Torah gives us four insights, practical insights that can help us not get stuck in cognitive bias. The first one is awareness. In classical Torah psychology called Musar, this is called Zihirut, self-awareness, that I have a hard time getting up in the morning. Then when my alarm rings and I hear a voice in me that says, just hit the snooze button and go to sleep for five more minutes, it's not because I actually believe five more minutes of sleep is going to do any actual good. I'm not going to wake up more well-rested in five minutes. It's that I just want to sleep five more minutes because it's easier, not more effective, not healthier, not ultimately better for me. I'll wake up five minutes later and just be more of a rush. So if I know that I have a tendency to hit the snooze button, then I know that the morning is not the best time to make a decision if I should be hitting it. I have to make the decision the night before. How much sleep do I need? What time am I getting up? Regardless of what I feel like at the time, unless it's a terrible headache or something. So we have to start becoming aware of our weak spots. If I've got a fragile ego, or I get jealous easily, or I get angry easily, or I have a hard time controlling my diet, or I'm not good with money, there should be a red light. I have to tread very carefully and not just go with the instinct of, I can probably convince myself that this is the right thing to do. So self-awareness is tool number one. Tool number two is go out of your way to hear the other side. You're making a decision about something. You can easily give yourself the five reasons of why the thing you feel like doing is the right thing. Try and come up with five reasons of why the thing that's harder to do is the right thing. The Talmud has a famous debate that went on for many years between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And they argued and argued and argued until finally there was a heavenly decree that we're going to always rule in favor of the school of Hillel. The Talmud says, why? Because when the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai would argue, when Hillel would hear Shammai's arguments before they responded, they would say, Shammai, I can explain what you're trying to say. I get it. I understand your perspective. Let me show it to you. You're saying X, Y, and Z for reasons A, B, and C, right? Here's why I think it's wrong. If you're really willing to hear both sides and then make a decision, about which one really is best, most true, most objective, most fair, you stand a much better chance of reaching a true conclusion. Tool number three, again, the rabbis in this book, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, say that every person needs to have a rabbi, i.e. a mentor, and a friend. You need objective people who can help you see things that you're not seeing especially if you've got a major decision to make. Should I buy this house? Should I go on this vacation? Should I invest in this business? There are so many emotional factors that go in. We could even convince ourselves that we're in love with somebody when it's really just lust. We don't really know that they're good for us. We don't really know much about their character. We're just sexually attracted. 
having an outsider who can challenge you, having a mentor who can challenge you, somebody who you respect, who can challenge you and say, how do you know you're seeing the whole picture? And you consider these factors. Having a friend you can be very open with and you can challenge you to really ask yourself, why am I so attracted to this person? Why am I so sure this business is a good investment? Why am I so convinced that this is the right car to buy at this price? Being able to share your ideas with others who are willing to push you on it and challenge you on it is a great reality check. And tool number four is learn from your own history. When you can look back in retrospect at decisions that you've made and see where you were off, see where you made mistakes, that's the best indicator that if you don't have a red warning bell in your mind, next time you're in that situation, you'll probably make exactly the same mistake. We all know the famous story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God tells Adam, if you eat from the tree, you're going to get kicked out of the garden. So the snake convinces Eve to eat from the tree. Eve convinces Adam to eat from the tree. And the next scene in the book of Genesis is that God appears to Adam in the garden and says, Adam, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Now, we already know God was planning on kicking him out. That was a clear punishment if you eat from the tree, but God didn't kick him out. All God did was ask him a question. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? What was Adam's answer? Yeah, but. That same yeah, but about President Biden, President Trump. Yeah, but. Yeah, I ate from it, but. It was my wife. She made me do it. God turns to Eve. Did you eat from the tree? Yeah, but. It wasn't really my fault. The snake made me do it. That's when God says, you're out of here. So the implication of the story is that they didn't get kicked out of the garden for eating from the tree. They got kicked out of the garden for not admitting that they eat from the tree. And I think the moral lesson there is huge. The lesson is that God really saying to you, you can make mistakes. You're a human being. You have emotions. You have instincts. You have desires. You have clouded vision. It's normal, called being human. But at least when it happens, admit it. When you look back at a mistake that you made, it could be at the time you really did convince yourself very well that you had to do that thing or that that was the best thing to do. But at least look back at it and say, that was a bad call. I was fooling myself. I was justifying it to myself. And I'm not going to let it happen again. If we're able to take responsibility for our decisions in the past, that's the best way to make sure we don't make the same mistakes in the future. We're going to continue this series with a few more episodes on how to think about stuff. Then we're going to start jumping into some pretty meaty topics. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, and also leave feedback if you liked the content, and especially if you didn't. These are important conversations, so let's keep schmoozing.